The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. As we continue in our Mark series this morning, I have the great privilege of introducing our speaker today, Dr. Mark Bailey, for 36 years as a professor and then as president and now as chancellor at Dallas Theological Seminary, has sought to glorify God by equipping godly servant leaders for the proclamation of God's Word and the building up of the body of Christ. As Chancellor, he also continues to serve as a senior professor of biblical exposition there. He leads walk through the Bible conferences and other conferences, both in America and throughout the world. He's author of numerous articles and books, but most important, he is the husband of Barbara, Barbie Bailey. He's the father of Josh and Jeremy, and he's the grandfather of six grandchildren. As Dr. Bailey came and spoke to some of our leaders last night, I was moved and challenged by great biblical teaching. But even more than that, you could hear this man's heart for his family, his heart for his wife, his kids, his grandkids to know Jesus Christ and to follow Jesus Christ and the joy that he gets in discipling his family. It was such a blessing. So in his home and at the seminary, he is leaving a legacy of leadership that casts a big shadow of joyful exposition of the Scripture rooted in God's love and aimed at helping people know and follow Jesus well. Dr. Bailey is a sort of person that David described when he was in his last days. He says, when one rules justly over men ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That is the sort of leader that Dr. Mark Bailey is. It's the sort of man that we're going to hear from today. Would you welcome Dr. Mark Bailey to TBC? Well, good morning. What a privilege it is to uh, be at Temple Bible Church. I've heard about you from, for years. Uh, I was acquainted with uh, Pastor Gary and uh, even prayed with him over the phone during his uh, uh, health stretch and uh, as God was uh, taking him to uh, be with himself. And so it's uh, just great to uh, see you, great to be here. Thank you, those who led in worship. Uh, I travel a lot and uh, not always is worship so nice. And uh, so uh, you should be very grateful for your musicians, the work that they do to put in, and all your tech people and everything. So we deeply, deeply appreciate it. And it's great to meet your team and uh, great to be here this morning. Uh, the way it happened was I was going to speak at the Texas Men's Conference, and uh, that got canceled. And so they said, well, do you have this weekend open? And I said, yes. And so we came down last night and had a, had a wonderful time with some of your leaders uh, last night. And uh, uh, then uh, to be here today is a privilege. I, uh, I, I don't deserve it, I just uh, get to appreciate it. And it's a, a privilege to be here. Uh, I have six grandchildren, I have one granddaughter uh, who turned 17 this year, and she is uh, pushing her dad for wheels. Uh, she's got a job for the summer and she's going, how will I get there if I don't have my own vehicle? And he's wanting her to earn some money before she gets a car. And so we're at that stage. And of course, uh, uh, Grammy and, uh, and they call me Baba. She named me when she was a baby and that stuck. And so uh, Grammy and Baba have a car that they're willing to give me uh, and to help me. And uh, we're not going to give it to her yet. 
uh, but uh, she needs to earn some of it. And so we're at that great stage on the top end with a 17 year old. Then we have a three year old grandson and the rest of them are boys. And so uh, she's our baby girl and then uh, the rest of them are, are, are all guys. And uh, a wonderful, wonderful time. They all live local and uh, we're very privileged and we get to see them. And we all, in fact, we all go to the same church where one of my sons is on staff. And so uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a unique joy to watch them grow up. Uh, one of them, uh, his name is Finn. He's in first grade. He was uh, in a minstrel, uh, he was the minstrel uh, in a minstrel show at uh, his school Friday evening. And uh, he was, uh, uh, he, he was sort of the one who was making the announcements in a thing called Camouflop. And it was a, a children's play about uh, a princess who wanted to find uh, God's man, a man of God for a, a husband. And uh, it was sort of a mixture of Camelot and Christianity in a first grade play. And it was wonderful. He memorized so many lines, I couldn't believe how many lines he, but he's, he's our sort of, our Eeyore personality. When things are going great, it's all fine. But if it, if it goes bad, the whole world is collapsing. And when he was a little bit younger, he uh, said, uh, he was at our house, he looked out the window and he said, he was about three, he goes, I'm going into timeout and I'm never getting out. <laughs> and it was a self-fulfilling prophecy because he got in trouble with his daddy and uh, he had to go to timeout and we were having dinner and he's in the back bedroom and we hear him yelling, I'm in timeout and I'm never getting out. <laughs> And I think about that and I think about uh, the Gospel of Mark and uh, Mark's presentation led by the Spirit of God to write the Gospel to a group of people who were facing the flack in their culture and the, the threat of persecution in Rome especially. And the disciples uh, don't come off really uh, with it as you're gonna see as you go through your series. In, in Matthew, they're the recipients of God's revelation and they get the, 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 the tools of, of uh, the truth that uh, they are going to take into the world. In Mark, they, uh, they, they, they stumble a little bit, as you'll see, and they, they falter a bit, especially in chapters eight through 10 when you get there. And uh, I've had, had the privilege of teaching an executive Bible study for years in the Dallas area to a group of guys. and. Uh, the core have stayed together almost 15 years now and uh, others have come and gone and it's great and uh, we've been by Zoom all year because of COVID and we're gonna get back together in the fall uh, live at the Dallas Country Club and we, uh, we have a blast and, and we've gone through the, uh, the front part of Mark so I can't wait for you to get there and uh, it's, been, it's been fun. So when I was asked to fit into your series on the Gospel of Mark, it wasn't hard for me to think about doing and so it's a privilege to be here but uh, the disciples don't quite get it at times. And uh, just like uh, Finn, uh, he, at times he feels like he's gonna be in timeout forever. And maybe you feel like that at times. And uh, so you've come through COVID and uh, our world has been in, in, a, in a crazy, crazy uh, place. And uh, it used to be that Christianity was, uh, was honored within our culture. Uh, and then there was a time when it was tolerated. Uh, there was a time when it's somewhat ignored. And now uh, we are the object of scorn for a lot of people and the agenda of uh, uh, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, his agenda, which is opposite God's agenda, is to, uh, to, to bring shame and to attack the cause of Christ. And that's what was happening in the first century. And so I often tell people, welcome to the first century. Rome was in charge, slavery was huge, taxation was high, abuse was abominable, and the emperors were demanding that they should be worshiped. And so uh, welcome to the 21st century. 
If Christianity can be birthed in that first century and make a world movement of believers around the world, Christianity can still be birthed in the hearts of people today and we can watch God uh, develop disciples who will follow hard after him. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter three. Mark chapter three, as we come to this text, last week your message that was given to you was uh, that, that, that Jesus is Lord in uh, four different ways. He's Lord over fasting. He's Lord over the Sabbath. He's Lord over people. He's Lord over the spirit world. The question that you ended with last week was, is he Lord of your life? And we continue with that theme as we come into Mark chapter three, uh, beginning in chapter 13. I'm sorry, beginning in verse 13 of chapter three. The context of Mark is the, the leaders, uh, the religious leaders don't uh, think Jesus is who he claims to be. Ironically, the demons know who he is and he is who he claims to be. And uh, the disciples don't think they know uh, who he is. And they were expecting a king that would come in and uh, overtake Rome and set up a kingdom. And they're waiting for that. And Jesus comes, as you know, in this book in a different way. He comes as a servant. And it's going to be through suffering, ultimately on the cross, by which he will defeat the ultimate enemy and be able to establish through the death, burial, and resurrection, ultimate life and ultimate kingdom, both here on this earth and then for all eternity. And so when we come to chapter uh, three, verse 13, he went up on a mountain and he called to him those whom he himself desired and they came to him. I wanna to talk to you about the call to follow Christ in a conflicted world. Two major points, the calling of Christ, the calling to follow Christ. I, I love these words, chosen by him, to have communion with him and being commissioned for him. Look at it with me again, he went up on a high mountain and he called, literally he was calling, he is calling those whom he wanted and they came to him. Chosen, when you think about it, he, he, he wanted people to follow him and he wanted to spend time with them. The, we, uh, I grew up in church and I heard the go of the gospel a lot. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. Uh, be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria, the uttermost part of the world. And, and that's all true and that's all there. But before you ever get to the commission, there was communion. Notice he, he chose them that they might be with him. He, he, he wanted to spend time with them. Uh, he, he believes as we're going to see in small group ministry. He, he, he wanted to develop a group of guys that he could turn loose on this world and uh, see it impact for his cause. He, he, they were chosen by him. He, he wanted these guys. If you ever get over the grace of God that he would want you. Uh, Paul Tripp wrote a book, uh, a devotional book called New Morning's Mercies. And uh, Barbie and I read through it last year together. And uh, Paul's a friend. and. Uh, uh, he, uh, he, he's a phenomenal writer, but uh, it, it's, it's sort of a Johnny One Note all the way through that book. Uh, and that is, uh, don't ever get over the grace and mercy of God. His, you know, we sang about it, great is thy faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. And why? Because we need him every single morning. But he wants us to spend time. He says, come boldly to the throne of grace, wherein you can find help and mercy and grace in time of need. He, he chose them because he wanted to be with them. He chose them uh, to, that they might be with him in that fellowship. And that's a huge theme throughout the scriptures that you and I could have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another while we're still sinners. And, and that's the beauty of that. 
I have a weird sense of humor. Those of you who heard me last night understand that already. And, uh, uh, but Daffy Duck cartoon years ago, if you ever watched it, he's on stage and there's a spotlight coming down from here and, and, he, and, he, and he's, it's all around him and he's trying to get out of the spotlight and the, you know, the spot camera you know, is following him, spotlight's following him. But I, but I often thought of that weird uh, picture. In fact, I even downloaded it and put it in a PowerPoint. Because in 1 John it says this, it says, uh, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, and there's no, fellow, there's no darkness with him at all, the Bible says, but if we walk with him, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, so if we together are in this cone of light, so to speak, and we're walking with him in the light, we have fellowship one with another, which is both vertical and horizontal, and the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. You and I are never away from being sinners. In fact, Paul, the older he got in the Lord, he realized he was the chief of sinners. And yet he understood grace because he said, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. When you understand Paul's life, that's a huge statement of relief on the one hand and indebtedness to God on the other. The, the privilege of fellowship in the light while we were watching God work in our hearts. He wanted those men to be with him. And then he wanted to send them forth, which is the commission. But, but I want you to understand, the invitation to communion precedes the imperative of commission. Uh, communion precedes commission. Commission flows out of communion. Our witness is the result of the wonder of God having reached us. And being a witness is simply telling others what God's done in our lives. That's all, that's all it takes to be a witness. That's what Paul said, if he did it to me, he can do it to you. If you understood who I'm, I'm Paul says, you, you'd understand grace. And if God can be gracious to me, he can be gracious to you. And that's what a witness is. So our, our witness comes out of our wonder of having spent time with him and our evangelism for him, sharing the good news with others, springs out of our own experience with him. We know what it means to be forgiven. We, we understand what it means to, to have, uh, have reconciliation in relationships. We, we understand what uh, a perspective of eternity looks like and, and how to live through crisis because we know the biblical worldview. We're living in a time when uh, one of the sort of themes is being on the right side of history. The problem is it's, uh, you can be on the right side of culture and on the wrong side of God's history. God has a worldview, it's the biblical worldview. His is really the true worldview, all contrary views are the culture that he says that's called the world. And the Bible says the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one in 1 John. So it's either his way or the world's way. And that's why we live in a conflicted world. And so he, he calls these guys because he's gonna have them represent him in mission as he commissions them. If you understood the, the, these 12 guys, in fact, we'll show you a chart of these guys. He appointed the 12 and he names them in here, but I want you to see a couple things from this chart. Each of the list of four is always headed in the scriptures by the same person. The, the one in, the, in the, uh, the top, Simon, who is called Peter, he is, it leads a group called Andrew, James, and John. Every time they're listed, it's in this order. Uh, Philip is always at the head of the next list, and John, the son of Alphaeus, is always the head of the next list. It's found in uh, three other passages in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 10, Luke chapter 6, and Acts chapter 1. 
Now, in the list of four, those, there may be some names that are inverted, but they're always in those groups. I, I think Jesus knows small groups are important. Uh, they're good for accountability, they're good for organization, they're good for leadership. And so you see some principles here, even in the way they're listed in the, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, that uh, uh, it, it's not the Peter, James, and John are in the sailboat, those three do have times with Jesus on their own. But uh, I love that too, because he, he doesn't just go with the top flow, he's reaching into all levels of that group and bringing those around him and teaching them with teachable moments all along the way. So these are the 12, these are the 12. But he calls them into a very conflicted world. Uh, I wanna take a moment and, and do a visual aid for you if I could. <clears throat> In the book of Acts, when Peter, or excuse me, when Paul is at Mars Hill and he's preaching, there were two philosophers, uh, 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 groups of philosophers on the hill uh, duking it out with him. Uh, they were the Stoics and they were the Epicureans. Now you couldn't get more polar opposite philosophies than those two. But ironically, the, the Stoics on the one hand, where sort of lived up to the name that has become sort of their byword, the Stoicism, uh, and Epicurean were pleasure seekers on the other end. And these two are the most polar opposites, but they are both acceptable in the Athenian culture. But not Christ. Paul showed up to preach Christ to them. Contradicted both ends of the spectrum as he presented the truth and the wonder of the gospel. You take a step back beyond Paul and you're at Jesus. And Jesus, as you read the gospels, he's out and about doing his thing. And uh, the Pharisees, which are the religious mucky mucks, and the Herodians, which are the political, basically, uh, you know, pro-Rome, you couldn't get more opposites, but the Pharisees and the Herodians come together and become bedfellows to get rid of Jesus. Now watch what happens in the 21st century. You and I are in a culture where uh, pluralism, anything goes, Oprah and her, clan, anything goes on one end of the spectrum. The irony, what's also tolerated and somewhat respected and promoted on the other end are atheists. Now think about that, multiple gods in multiple ways, no God at all. Those are politically correct in our culture, even though they're philosophically opposed. They both can't be right. They can both be wrong, but they both can't be right. You can't have no gods and many gods at the same time, but they're okay. But the one and only God, as Paul says, though there be many that are called gods, yet there is just one. And he's the father who sent his son. See, we're living in a conflicted culture. Jesus was too, Paul was too. So welcome to the first century and welcome to the 21st century. But I want you to see it, it reached not just in the secular culture, it reached into the very family of Jesus. Look at it with me in the text. He comes home in verse 20, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. One of the themes that you will see in the early chapters of Mark is the crowd pressing, the crowd pressing, the crowd pressing. Well, he, he, he's been over by the Sea of Galilee, he comes back over now uh, to Nazareth, he's at home. The crowd is swelled, but his family heard it. Notice, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now, now let's, let's look at that for a moment. 
his, 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 the reactions of his own family is that Jesus has lost it. Now, I, I want you to think about this. What, what would have been like to be a sibling of Jesus? He was never at fault. His mom knows who he is. And, you, and if there's a problem, it's you. What a bummer to be a brother or sister of Jesus. He was never wrong. It's always your fault. But they don't get him. And Mary knows who he is, but the others don't get it. In fact, they don't get it until after the resurrection. I mean, they see him as the carpenter's son like everybody else did, but he's out and about. He's doing his, he, he sort of became a little bit of a rabbi. He became a teacher and he's traveling about. And then we hear these miracles that are, the people are saying he did miracles. He, he cast out demons. He, he, he cured uh, the, the paralytic. He, he, he cured a withered hand. Uh, and, and so people are clamoring to him and the crowd is pressing on him. He comes home and, and I think his family, they think he's just lost it. Literally, it says in my translation, he's out of his mind. In Greek, it's literally, he's outside of himself. Okay, so there, you know, when we, we see somebody, he's a, a, a lunatic. I mean, we like bit by the moon, where that came from, I have no clue. But we have all these expressions for people who just aren't quite there. You know, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. You know, the elevator doesn't go to the top floor. Lights on, nobody's home. My favorite is, the wheel is spinning, but the hamster's dead. Now, whatever the motivation, I think they may have been self-protecting of themselves. I think they may have even had some compassion that, man, this crowd's going to kill Jesus and we got to, but the, the word that the, it, it's used here for seizing him is a word that elsewhere is used for arresting. They're, they're doing an intervention, arresting Jesus to get him out of there. And their conclusion is he's lost it. Now, my immediate family all know the Lord, but I have extended family who don't get the Lord. Some of you have too. And they don't get you because they don't get, they, they don't get the Lord. They think you're a little weird. You know, and it's okay for you. Your truth, your truth, my truth, my truth. You know, we're, we're into that whole thing. And, uh, but his family thinks he's lost it. That's why Jesus said at times about coming back to Nazareth, he says, you're probably gonna tell me a physician heal yourself. <laughs> uh, the things you did in Galilee, why don't you do them here? And Jesus says, no prophet is without honor except at home. <laughs> Toughest place to live the Christian life is at home. That's where it really, but he's come home and they think he's crazy. And they were saying it, it's a, a, the verb of the tense there is they kept saying it, they kept saying it. He's out of his mind. Now that's the family. Then you've got the religious leaders who've come down from Jerusalem come down because of topographical elevation, probably also there's a little bit of, of, of literary art of the fact that uh, they're coming off their high position of authority and they're coming down to investigate what's going on. And they were saying, same verb by the way, what they were saying up, up in verse 21, they are saying in 22, same word there, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Now who in the world is Beelzebul? Uh, the form of Beelzebub or Beelzebul, depending on your translation that you have, is uh, literally a name that comes from a Philistine god uh, that uh, one writer feels, and many writers feel, it's, it's the Lord of the Flies. Now, flies like to land on 
And so that became a little bit of a derogatory term. Baal was the Canaanite god of fertility and, uh, and, and, and uh, deity and so forth. And, uh, and so uh, the Philistines named one of their gods, Baal-zebul, which is the Lord of the Flies, because they believe the Mediterranean sea breeze that came in kept the flies from lighting, the mosquitoes from lighting on them. But it became a derogatory term for the worst you could say. And in fact, it was not just so disrespectful, but it was basically saying, you're of the devil, the prince of demons. And so that was one of the worst things you could say. The Jews would use it as a swear word against the Philistine God, but now they turn it and use it. The worst thing they could say, they say it on Jesus. Uh, you, you, uh, he's possessed by Beelzebul, that's the first charge. And the second one in verse 22, he's, he's empowered by the devil. Look at it there. He, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So here Jesus is being demonized, pardon my pun, by the religious leaders for being in league with Satan. Now, then comes the response of Jesus. Uh, this, this is a fascinating section. Uh, and he, he uses the term parable. He called them to him and he said to them in parables. Parabole in Greek or par, comes from parabalo. Balo meaning to cast down and para alongside. Paramedical alongside the medical. Paralegal alongside the legal. Parabalo means to cast down or throw alongside. And it's for the purpose of analogy and comparison and contrast. A, a physical illustration for a spiritual truth is the way it's normally used. So Jesus decides to uh, come after this. And he comes after the second charge first. And then he's going to answer the first charge. So he said, if you think I'm getting my power from Satan, let's, let's talk a little bit. And so notice the text. How can Satan cast out Satan? Verse 23. You see, Satan casting out Satan would be self-destructive. How do you do a self-exorcism? <laughs> you know, how does Satan cast himself out? These are rhetorical questions. There is no answer. And Jesus, I, I loved watching Jesus with the opposition in the Gospels. It's, there's some humor there because he, he ties them in knots. And so he says, what, how, how, you know, Satan casting out Satan, that, that'd be self-destructive. That, that's not going to work. And then he gives two illustrations of a kingdom and a house. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, it won't be able to stand. You see, divided kingdoms like divided houses inevitably fail or fall. Uh, you know, you, you, you have a, a, a split in the army and you have, you have uh, deserters that turn and, 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 and shoot their comrades. That's not going to be a, a good battle. Kingdoms don't stand if kingdoms are divided. Houses don't stand if houses are divided. I've lived in a destructed house. I, my wife and I, a few years ago, we, we had 23 months of horror as we invested in a house uh, that was being built. It was a semi-custom house, so we made some changes and did some upgrades and put a pool in the backyard. And we were in a neighborhood. We've lived all of our time in Dallas. We've lived in Arlington except for these 23 months. We moved to Grand Prairie. And we, it was a gated community, we thought uh, was going to be a gated community, and really had a nice plan, but it never really came together well. And we didn't realize until after we had moved in that we were, our house was built over a swamp. 
Now, if you're an architect, there's ways to deal with that, okay? But they didn't deal with it that way. And so we also were at a low part of the neighborhood, of this hilly neighborhood, and we were the drain plug of the neighborhood. Now, that wasn't, that wasn't all. Uh, our house began to crack apart. Literally, it's like taking a plastic picnic plate, hitting it under here and just watching it crack. That's what happened, the upthrust of the water, because the water wasn't just surface water. It was in that Texas clay soil. We're in that stream there in the Grand Prairie where the water comes between the clay soil. And uh, three feet under our living room was three feet of water. And our house basically disintegrated. Uh, ultimately, we got out of it, which uh, by God's grace, but it was not easy. But 20, 23 months, we lived through that. We, we cried a lot in the early days. We started laughing a lot. We said we'd go, go out to our speaking engagement, come home after the weekend, and our house digits had changed by two because the house had moved down the street a bit. Uh, we said we lived in a mobile home, okay? One of our colleagues liked the most is Bailey's live in a crack house, you know? And, uh, you could literally lay in bed at night and hear the walls crack. In fact, big eight-foot sheetrock would just rip, just rip in two. I mean, they would just rip. We had a double-stack fireplace that we put in, anchored to the ceiling. The wall behind it moved out two inches. You could see the studs. It was, it was, it was horrendous. But we learned a phenomenal principle, and that is that's, that's not our home. That's our house on the way to our home. And uh, we, we were there 23 months. God delivered us by his grace, and we're in a great house now, but uh, I, I know what it means to live in a house that's falling apart. It doesn't stand, and uh, we're glad we're out of it. But, but then, he, then he goes on with this, and he says this, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Literally, he has his end. In other words, uh, why would you be bothered by this, you religious leaders? If Satan is casting out Satan, he's destroying Satan, and he's dividing Satan, why are you worried? <laughs> but that's not how Satan's going to do it. It's, 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 it's an oxymoronic impossibility for Satan to, to cast out Satan. And then he answers the first charge when he says, you know what, it takes somebody stronger than a strong man who lives in a house to bind that strong man in the house and take his stuff. And this is where Jesus, in his parabolic way, answers the scribes and says this. You know what, if I'm uh, casting out Satan, who's stronger? If Satan is a strong power, and he is a supernatural power, he's not deity, but he is a supernatural power, spiritual power, he doesn't have all the attributes of God, but he's a spiritual being with incredible power. He, he, he controls the world, and if I'm taking him out, who's the strongest? And of course, none of these questions have good answers to them other than shut up. <laughs> and so he then says this, when he does bind him, then indeed he may plunder his house. And one of the fun things about Jesus in the plan of God is that from the, the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden where Satan in essence, steals a kingdom, he thinks, in this world and sets up a counterfeit kingdom. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the god of this world. He is the counterfeit kingdom that Jesus is invading. 
has been and will invade and plunder and bring people to himself. And that's why Paul says, we've been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. That's the rescue that Jesus is doing. And that's why he came, to defeat, to put an end to sin, to defeat the devil, to bring life out of death. And he's invaded the strong man's house and he's gonna plunder it. And then he says this, but truly I say unto you. Now, we say amen at the end of a message and that's the way the Jews did it. Only Jesus has the authority to say amen before he speaks. And in fact, this is the first of 13 times through the rest of the book. Watch for them as you study this book together in the coming weeks. 13 times Jesus will say verily or amen, truly I say to you. And he with authoritative statements is gonna teach truth that ought to be listened to well. He says, I tell you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men. And whoever blasphemes, they utter, but whatever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And I wanna say a couple of things very quickly about this. The Bible says there's ways you and I as believers, if you know Jesus Christ, you and I can sin against the Holy Spirit. It's not the same as blasphemy. We can lie to the Holy Spirit as Ananias and Sapphira did. They promised that they would do something and they didn't do it. That was lying to the church and to the Holy Spirit, Acts 5. We can grieve the Holy Spirit by not allowing him to fill us and control us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. We can quench the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, by allowing sin to go unconfessed. In other words, we live in our sin as opposed to keeping short accounts with God. That quenches what the Spirit wants to do in our lives. Those are all ways that you as I, and I as believers can sin against the Spirit. But the Bible says everything somebody says against Jesus will be forgiven, but not this one. This is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So there's two ways that unbelievers, I believe, can sin against the Spirit. One is they can continually reject Jesus Christ throughout their life and die, obviously, with unforgiven sin. But simply rejecting Jesus is not a sin that's unforgivable because many of you did that for years before you came to Jesus. So simple res resistance and rejecting Jesus, as, as a, uh, a Stephen said in Acts chapter seven to the leadership of Israel, you are constantly resisting the spirit as the message is being preached to you and you constantly resist. But the irony is in the book of Acts, many chief priests came to know Christ. Uh, Paul was a persecutor, obviously a resistor and a persecutor of the faith, but he came to faith. It's not murder, it's not adultery, it's not rejecting Jesus for a long period of time. That's not the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is probably one of two things, and let me give it to you in two ways. One is uh, a, a, a resistance of the obvious public work of God in such a way that you resist so long that finally, as the Bible says, my spirit won't always strive with men, where you become hardened and then God hardens your heart and you never then can get saved. Uh, that's one way this has been interpreted. If that's the case, uh, then uh, uh, could it be committed today? The answer is yes. 
Another definition that I think is based on this text that I'd offer to you, and I wouldn't, this isn't a hill I would die on, but uh, these are two good explanations for what is the blasphemy of the spirit. Because in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, they say anything you say against the son of man can be forgiven. But this one won't be forgiven. And so what is it? Notice the text says, for they were saying, verse 30, he has an unclean spirit. So I would define the unpardonable sin as attributing to Satan the works of the Holy Spirit as done through Christ in the miracles of his earthly ministry by which he was authenticating his message. Here they were visibly watching Jesus heal, cast out demons, feed the multitudes, etc. They were watching him do the miracles that were signs of his kingdom, that were signs of the authentication of his message. They were looking at that and saying, you know what, we can't deny that miracles are happening. We just think it comes from the devil. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. If that's the case, that then that's a historic sin that the leadership was in danger of committing at that time that Jesus was warning them about that uh, we're, because we don't see Jesus on earth performing public miracles in that sense today. God can do anything he wants, anytime he wants, and we leave that to him. But the Messiah is not here in his first advent authenticating his message of the kingdom with miracles on planet earth in that sense. And so this may be a historical sin. If that's the case, then it probably couldn't be committed today. If you've ever worried that you've committed the unpardonable sin, you probably haven't because you wouldn't worry about it if you had. Okay, you wouldn't have that kind of sensitivity. We can sin against the spirit, but I wanted you to see something that you ought not to miss. Every other sin is forgivable. David, adultery and murder. Paul, persecution to the point of murder. You've got Simon Peter who even denied Jesus in front of the leadership. You've got Judas who sold him out. (laughs) We know he wasn't a believer. But uh, you and I sin all the time. In fact, 1 John, 5, 1 John 1 said, if you don't sin, you call God a liar. Because he knows you do. In fact, if you say you don't sin, that's probably your first one today. Probably not your first one, but it's one for today. But what I love about this is that forgiveness is available for everybody. Who obviously won't do that. And that's the positive side of this. I want you to see this because in, the, in a conflicted culture, you've only got a couple of options. It's called the Great Trilemma by Philip Schaff, the eminent church historian. He wrote it this way. The hypothesis of imposture, in other words, Jesus being an imposter, that hypothesis of Jesus being an imposter is so revolting to moral as well as common sense that in mere statement, it is a condemnation. How in the name of logic, common sense, and experience could an imposter that is, a, that is a deceitful, selfish, depraved man have invented and consistently maintained from the beginning to the end the purest and noblest character known in history with the most perfect air of truth and reality. How could he have conceived and successfully carried out a plan of unparalleled benevolence, moral magnitude, sublimity, and then sacrificed his own life for it in the face of the strongest prejudices of his people in the ages? That's the historian. C.S. Lewis picked up on that theme in his writings. And here I want to quote and close with his. C.S. Lewis said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about him. 
In other words, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we mustn't say, Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. In other words, he claimed to be God. A good moral teacher who wasn't God wouldn't be a good moral teacher if he claimed to be God. He says that would be on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. One of the things you'll find in this book is that Jesus will say, you're either against me or you're for me. There's no middle ground. He either is who he is, or he's a liar, or as his family thought for a while, he's out of his mind. But he can't just be a good teacher because of everything he's just been claiming to be and do. You heard it last week, he claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. The demons even know who he is, he's the son of God. What do we have to do with you, son of God? They're people who are dumber than demons because they reject the true identity of Jesus Christ. He won't let us be neutral with that at all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the presentation of your word. It's so real doesn't pull punches, it's honest, it's true to life, and it confronts us with the ultimate of decisions. What do we think about Jesus Christ? Lord, I pray if there's somebody sitting on the fence that is not yet trusted in your son as their savior, that listening to this even today, that your spirit would work on their heart and draw them to yourself. Believing that you sent your son to die on a cross for our sins, that you rose him, raised him from the, the grave to give us life. Not only to give us forgiveness of sins, a different life now, but also a great eternity to look forward to. Lord, for those of us for whom we've made that decision of faith in response to your grace, would you help us to live it? Would you help us to live, not cockily, but with confidence in a Christ who is who he claims to be, the very Son of God. We ask it in his name.